This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast, where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive. We're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven. I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Amen. Amen. Cut off my knees and put it into my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. With your no good and camp, you're listening to the and campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney, aka Bishop Cooper's grandson, and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, as you know, this is the first episode of church politics in 2024. So uh, happy new year to you. Happy new year to my audience, man. How you been? Happy new year. It has been an exciting time, so I'm excited to be back at it for 2024. Yeah, man, we have a lot of exciting stuff coming to you, not just from church politics, but for the AND campaign in general. I might touch on some of that later today, but you tune in here to get to the issues. So we want to make sure that we're getting to the issues that you care about. And Chris, right before we jumped on, I just heard a story that that was pretty crazy to me. You know, both of us have been on campaigns. Mm hmm. When you're part of a campaign, you just kind of go with the campaign for better or worse. But what I just heard was that a group of Biden campaign staffers have issued an anonymous letter protesting his approach to the Israel-Hamas war. Yeah. Now, you got to stand on business. So if that's how they really feel, hey, I, you know, I, I can't tell nobody, anybody not to say anything. But I can say this. You would have never most back in the day, you just you may have resigned, <laughs> then did it or something. You would never be part of a campaign and then protest that campaign while you're in it. Yeah. If people have not worked on a campaign, it might be a little bit difficult to get a sense of how crazy that is, especially. I mean, to be on a presidential campaign, we're going to talk about the election a little bit later, but. That is wild to see a a group of current campaign staff. I mean, this is not like folks in a congressional office. This is campaign staff. They're out there trying to get this guy elected. And, and they usually, write a protest letter. Right. And usually that would be the end of your campaign. Right. Like if you had people in your campaign that came out on something, this this is the biggest thing going on right now. Yeah. So you have people on your campaign come out against you on something this big. The thing that will save Biden and this won't end his campaign. Number one, there's no primary. <laughs> they're, they're taking people. The Democrats are taking folks off ballots and everything. They, there's not going to be a primary. And there's just so much so many other things going on that, you know, this may be a blip. You have to if you're, if you're the campaign manager, like you have to be. This is a nightmare. Yeah. I mean, somebody's somebody somewhere is screaming. I can tell you that. Man, including Biden himself, but especially their communications team, like communications is just a tough on the campaign. Communications is a real tough job in the first place. Obviously, campaign manager is a tough job. These folks are not making this job any easier. And that's maybe that's not what they're there for. I mean, usually campaign staff is there for that. I probably would have resigned and then said something if it was that big of a deal. And this is a big deal, but I probably would have resigned first. That's that's the part that I see about it because it's, it's an anonymous letter, right? So names are not on it obviously, because you would so quickly be fired if your name was on it. But to me, like, if you cared that much, like if it's such a big deal to you, then resign from the campaign, publicly criticize the candidate. And if it's not that big of a deal, be quiet and like do your job and, and work on the campaign. So yeah. I think it is wild, but it doesn't, I'm less than inspired by the group. Let's just say that. Yeah, it's kind of throwing a stone and hiding your hands. I'm, you know, I'm not mad if that's the way they really feel. As you said, there's a better way to go about it. Yeah. I did, I did not expect to see that, but in this day and age, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. I've never seen it before, and one of the things, I mean, we're we're gonna go further with the show, and I, I, I'll say more later. But one of the things that 
I'm just noticing, I'm saying a lot of things that we've never seen before. Maybe too many unprecedented things all at once, you know? Yeah, that's not necessarily good for a system or a culture to see a whole lot of unprecedented things, unless they're all really, really good. I'm not sure that all of these are really good, but it shows how people look at institutions. It shows what they think about, you know, what it means to put your name behind something and why mm-hmm. that means more than just kind of putting it out there. So we'll see. We'll see what happens, man. Something else that I have to mention while that team out in L.A., they won some little tournament, AAU tournament or something. Uh, <laughs> And they were excited. And I think they put a banner up. That L.A. team put a banner up after win- winning an AAU tournament. Or so it was really weird. I've never, you know, <laughs> I've never seen that happen before. Sadly, that same team, the L.A. Lakers, are at this very moment below 500. And so I know we got a lot of folks that listen to us out in L.A. And I just want to send my condolences to you and your season. You know, we never want to see stuff like this happen. But it couldn't happen to a better team. Yeah. Any comments, Chris? I, I will say that I was personally never a fan of the tournament, but the the actual playoffs are a little bit more difficult. So a lot more difficult, a lot more difficult, which is why you saw a lot of the better teams probably not taking it as serious as this particular team. But anyway, enough about that, guys. You know, if you want to support the and campaign, you, you know what it is. You can always be a patron for the Church Politics Podcast. So if you go to Patreon dot com slash church politics you can support us there and if you do support us you can actually get premium episodes so there you know there's always another a uh, segment that we have in addition to this that you can listen to if you decide to support us if you just want to support the and campaign then you can go to the website and help us out there everything helps you know we appreciate y'all for uh, supporting us and what we do and how we do it so thank you for all who give and all who have taken the time to show us support, some support. Well, you know what it is. It's time to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but to think like a Christian. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney and the Right Reverend Christopher Butler. If you don't mind, Chris, I want to start with a little bit of scripture. I'd like to go to Proverbs 23, 13 through 14. And it says this. Eat honey, my son, for it is good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know also that wisdom is like honey for you. If you find it. There's a future and hope for you and your hope will not be cut off. Chris, Christians should seek wisdom. And when we become wise, we'll understand that there is a future not only in the hereafter, but that there's a future here on Earth. That's that's part of Christian wisdom to understand that. And we can look into that future with expectation. We can look into that future with hope. There is always a reason to be hopeful. And so, Chris, with that in mind, you and I both know that a lot of people have been dreading 2024 because of this election cycle and all that can come with it. A lot of people are really worried about what this year will lead to. How will this year affect the church? How will this year affect us culturally and politically? And I I think many of those concerns are, are warranted. But Chris, before we got into what we may be worried about, in 2024, I think it's always best to start with the positive. Yes. What do we have to look forward to? Christians should always have look forward with a level of expectation, with a level of hope. And so I kind of want to talk about how you and I, you know, what are some of the things that we're looking forward to? Yeah. And I'll start it off, Chris, if you don't mind. I think one of the big things that I'm looking forward to, brother, is um, seeing seeing parts of the church come together in 2024. And and hopefully the and campaign, if necessary, being a part of some of that conversation. So as many of you know, we have our civic revival initiative that started up this year where we are really trying to make sure that the church goes into this 2024 election cycle in a constructive way, much more constructive than we did in, in 2016 and 2020, and also come out of it in a constructive manner, meaning that if our person loses, we don't lose our mind. 
if it doesn't go the way we want it to go, that we somehow quit engagement or disengage from the church or treat our neighbors disrespectfully. Because in different cases, all those things have happened. And so the Ann campaign is saying, let's do this differently. And so one of the things you and I did, Chris, and we spent a good amount of time on it, is we came with 10 disciplines. And hopefully these 10 disciplines will form habits that allow Christians to go into this political cycle prophetically and effectively and, again, constructively. Right. So we we have we have things like making sure that you understand that people are more, more than who they voted for. Everybody is more than just a political abstraction. What scripture and Christian principles lead us not only to believe that, but to understand that it's required of us to see people as being more than their vote, never to limit somebody to being a political abstraction. We're going to be taking these principles all over the country. I'm really excited about the tour we're doing. We even have what I think are going to be most likely some really fun and interesting faith and politics forums that we're going to be doing this year. So that's one of the big things that I'm looking forward to is that civic revival. We've already got a pretty large majority uh, black church and a pretty large majority white church who have allowed us to come into their church and ask for us to come into their churches to go over these disciplines to prepare their, you know, their people for 2024. So I'm excited about it. I think we can always take a something that can be a negative and find a way to turn it into a positive or, or even if it's a test to answer that test better than we would have otherwise. All right, Chris, what, what you got, man? Yeah, those are, are really exciting things that I'm, I am looking forward to civic revival as well. But I have to say the most exciting things that are happening for me that I'm looking forward to in 2024 are not happening in politics. When we got married, disease and I, we wanted to have a good amount of kids, maybe a lot of kids. And I think we officially got there in December. You got there, buddy. Uh, got we there. welcomed baby number six to the Butler household. Uh, so that's exciting and looking forward to um, it, incorporating uh, Cole, Azariah Butler into our family. And then on the other end, our other daughter, who we brought into our lives. She's like a goddaughter, but I think she's like just my daughter, daughter. Uh, but she's going to be finishing her master's degree this year. Oh, wow. Really exciting things on the front there. And I mentioned those things on the Church Politics Podcast because I think it is worth remembering that life does not solely consist of what's happening on television and on social media and with presidential candidates. And sometimes the 24-hour news cycle, especially for political nerds who like to look at politics like me, I, I fall into that category. We can get sucked into it so much that we think that this is all of life and it's really not. Uh, so I just urge people in our audience to look around at all of what God is doing in, in all different areas of life and know that it's all part of it. So that's one of the things that, that I'm looking forward to. And I think if you look at life that way, a lot of folks have a lot to uh, be hopeful about in 2024. No, that's good. And and I didn't say when we talked about this earlier, I didn't say it had to be political stuff. And so mm -hmm. I'm glad you picked up on the fact that life is bigger than politics. And let's look to some things outside of politics to be hopeful for. Now, I focus on politics, but I think it's good to broaden that a little bit, too, for the very point that you mentioned. But here's the other thing that I'm somewhat looking forward to in 2024 and beyond, because I don't know not much legislation gets passed in an yeah. election year. But I'm hoping that with this one, we can bring more awareness to it through the elections, even in the election cycle. Mm -hmm. And this is one we've talked about before. And every time I share this on Instagram or on other places, Twitter or whatever, it's one of the most liked points because I think people really understand why it's necessary. I want to see what happens with Rokana's reform plan. Yes. I think it's a great plan. I think if you really want to change our politics, you need we need to change the incentives for our politicians, period. We've been talking about that over and over. Got to change the that's that's our role. Right. Our role is to make sure that they have the right incentives. And so what Ro kind of uh, suggested, he said he he wants to ban stock trading for Congress and their spouses. What's happening is people are investing in stocks that they actually have an impact on how the stock rises or falls. 
or they just have information, insider information on what's going to happen. And so they're making tons of money. People in Congress do way better than your average American that that invest does because they have information they should not have. Yeah. And they should not be doing that. That is very simply corruption. And it's not corruption that you can just blame. I know some of you think only the Democrats are corrupt. Some of you think only the Republicans are corrupt. Not every member is doing this, but both sides are doing this. Go look it up and you can go to Unusual Whales on Twitter to look it up. He also wants to ban Congress from lobbying. So the other thing that they're doing is if I know I can get a job with a certain company as a lobbyist after I'm done in Congress, I may show them a little favoritism. I may not be impartial in how I go about things that that impact them. Again, a terrible incentive. We want our Congress people to vote because something was right or it's wrong, not based on their self-interest or their finances after they leave office. Well, if that's the case, this is clearly another one that's common sense, anti-corruption reform. And that's what I like about this. The other one is a, a 12, 12 year limits in Congress for Congress people. OK, and then a ban on lobbyists and political action committee donations. So they cannot donate to campaigns for obvious reasons. These things all make sense to me. Again, I don't know who the chances of this passing this year, but to let more people know about it to hopefully we can get to the place where say, hey, you ask your congressperson if they're supporting this. And if not, why not? And why should I vote for you if you don't want to go against corruption? Any thoughts about that, Chris? I really love the plan from Rokana because especially on the stock trading, you know, there's new reporting just at the end of last year that all these members of Congress are beating the market. And in a lot of ways, especially with Congress, it's not just actual corruption that always has to be uh, there. Even just like the suspicion, the, the, the kind of image of corruption is enough to erode confidence. So if there is some other correlation between a person's ability to win a congressional campaign and their ability suddenly to do well in the stock market, we still shouldn't allow it because it really does erode trust. And so I would love to see this gain traction. Like you said, the possibility of legislation passing in election years is, is kind of low, especially major legislation. But, you know, I mean, I hope he keeps touting it because we're going to talk about the election a little bit later. Biden could pick up this plan and make it his campaign. And I think it would be a lot more effective than much of what is, is happening right now. And so I think that that is important. And it kind of connects to one other thing that I'm looking forward to, or at least hoping for. I don't know if I can say I'm looking forward to it because I don't know. But hoping for uh, that this might be the year that the duopoly, as we've come to call it, begins to lose its grip. You do have in Robert Kennedy well, Jr. Like, can, you, can you define the duopoly just in case people aren't familiar? Yeah, with so so that is the two party consensus of control, like over our elections, right? Like this this idea that in a free and open democracy, it is free and open as long as you're a member of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And in too many cases, there is consensus between the two to mostly maintain the status quo at the end of the day. And we can have more conversation about that. The rhetoric is is very different, but ultimately the outcome is the same. And I think a lot of that has to do with the inability of people who are outside of either one of those official party structures to really find success in our electoral processes. And I do think that some of what we're seeing in the political discourse right now may be enough to really change the relationship of people to both of these political parties to the extent that something different may be able to happen in our election. So it is it's probably less likely than legislation passing and in the election year, but it's close enough to hope for. All right. So I'm, I'm going to be watching it closely. Well, I'm going to be hoping with you. Shout out to our friends from the Solidarity Party. Man, it would be great to, to break this duopoly. We know it's easier said than done, not impossible. And so uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe people start to see this. This isn't working so well, because as you said, on many of the issues where sometimes there's consensus between people in different parties, we see Congress and others just maintaining the status quo. And usually that status quo is a very corporatist, 
favor yeah. status quo, right? Yeah. And and that just has to change. One way or another, people have to stand up and change. I think that's it's it's worth us continuing to talk about it and people considering things other than red and blue. So yeah. you know I support you on, on that one, brother. We will be right back on the Church Politics Podcast. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. All right, Chris. We want to start off on a positive note. So we had a good conversation about some things that we're looking forward to in 2024. Some of them were political. Some of them were not political. And I think that was a a good exercise for us. And I hope everybody else who's listening to us just think about some things you're looking forward to. So in the bad moments, you can still have your eyes on something that has some hope to it. Right Mm -hmm. now, I think we need to discuss what may cause some concern from us on 2024. Now, while the Bible tells us, Chris, to be hopeful, it doesn't compel us or encourage us to close our eyes to the problems around us, right? We don't have to be oblivious to something staring us in the face. And in that vein, there was an article circulating around the internet earlier this week that cast a pretty dark shadow on 2024 domestically and really on a foreign policy front as well. I believe his name was Eris Rusinos, wrote an article for Unheard. Unheard is an online publication entitled The World Should Fear 2024. Here's how he starts it. He said the year 2023 saw the greatest global resurgence of armed conflict since 1945. 2024 will be worse. We are living, if not through a world war, then a world at war. Wow. He goes on to say that unlike the two world wars, the rival great powers are not challenging the superpower directly, at least not yet. Instead, American hegemony is being challenged obliquely as rivals nibble at the edges of the empire, targeting weaker client states in confidence that the United States now possesses neither the logistical capacity nor the domestic political stability necessary to impose its order on the world. The overriding theme of 2024 then, like 2023, will be that of imperial overreach, precipitating retreat from global dominance. Wow, those are those are some pretty strong words, Chris. And he goes on, Chris, to kind of break it down into a, a couple of different conflicts and, and why those conflicts cause him some, some concern. So he goes on, he starts off by, by talking about Ukraine. And this is what he has to say about Ukraine. Russia's transition to a war economy and its seizing of Western companies in response to a, to a sanctions regime whose effects have proved the opposite to those intended, have granted Russia both renewed offensive potential and an economic boom to pay for it. So if I'm hearing this right, Chris, we sanctioned Russia. Russia responded by creating what they're calling this war economy, where it kind of took over foreign countries. So if you had a if you had a company in Russia, they might take it over, which actually caused an economic boom. So our sanctions were counterproductive, if, if I'm hearing this correctly. 
So he goes on to say that we've sent $75 billion to Ukraine. No, I, I'm saying this. We've we've sent $75 billion to Ukraine, <laughs> right? I got to get my quotes right. We've sent $75 billion to Ukraine in a war that it looks like we cannot win at this point. They cannot win. He says, this is his quote, an increasingly confident Moscow shows no inclination towards peace talks without Ukraine making territorial and political concessions indistinguishable from surrender. There's also now here's the other thing that we before I move on to the next thing, Chris, and maybe we'll talk about Ukraine and then we'll move on. There's also been indications that America may have discouraged peace talks between these two countries early on. So there are reports out there that there were peace talks going on between Russia and Ukraine early on. The U.S. discouraged Ukraine from entering into those and moving forward with them, gave them $75 billion. And now they're in a situation where it doesn't look like they can win the war. And our attention has moved on to Israel, which we'll get into next. Talk to me, Chris, about why this Ukraine war a little bit is something that we should be concerned about. I think the Ukraine war in and of itself, and we've talked about this a few times on this podcast, is it's something that we should be concerned about, to me, primarily in the broader context in which the, the, the author of this article is placing it, right? Like it, it really has to do with America extending itself or, or perhaps overextending itself, as this article argues, in conflicts that may not be core to our national interest, right? Like the, the national interest is not just about, you know, some ethereal commitment to global democracy and those types of things. We have to think a little bit more practically about these things. And was this ever at the core of our interest? And a lot of people, and we've talked about it in this podcast, have talked about how much money, how much military resources we've sent into the Ukraine. And now it does look like that's not going to achieve the kind of victory that we had hoped. But I like that this this article comes back to the sanctions, like the, the kind of sanctions regime that we imposed in Russia was something that was, it was really aggressive for modern times. And it is a playbook that you probably only get to do once because the next nation that we pull it on is going to see Russia's playbook for getting around it. So you played that card, you sent so much money, so many military resources, and for for what purpose is starting to become the question uh, as this new assessment is coming that Ukraine may not be able to achieve what was uh, originally put forward as victory. And even some folks who were really hard on Russia and supported this in the beginning are saying it's just not winnable at this point. So you think about $75 billion. And the argument initially was that if we allow them to take Ukraine and don't do anything about it, then it just creates a snowball effect. And I guess they just take over everything. Was that ever really true, though? So because they take over Ukraine, what, then now they just go to Germany? And it's not that easy. The thing that was hardest for me is that it was unilateral to some extent on our part. We were carrying so much of the burden and did not get the people, our allies, who are closer to them to join in and carry some of that. That's what was, to me, short-sighted about it. And I had an issue with no, never in support of, of Russia or what Russia has done or they continue to do. It just seems like we need to take a different tact next time something like this comes along. No, for sure. Yeah, I mean, so what we go, where he goes next is he goes to Israel. And here's what he says here. And again, this isn't a, a full endorsement of everything he says, but I think he makes some good points in general in this article. He says, when U.S. envoys beg Israel to scale down its war, not Netanyahu immediately promises to intensify it. Even as American planners fret over the erosion of their precious munition stockpiles by the Ukraine war, Israel is burning through U.S. donated supplies at an alarming rate. Until the U.S. can increase its munitions production and replenish its arsenal, which may take years, Every shell fired on Gaza or in eastern Ukraine weakens America's deterrent power. This shortfall presents America's rivals with a rare and unexpected window to challenge the superpower directly. 
in the knowledge that it will struggle to fight a high intensity war of any great duration. Then he goes on to say, and I'll I'll pass to you after this. He, He says, so politically toxic is Israel's Gaza campaign that even America's closest NATO allies prefer to keep their distance from American security efforts in the Red Sea. While as a result of poor procurement decisions, the U.S. Navy is struggling to marshal the resources necessary to keep trade routes open, the basic function of a global empire. There's been some things said by Israeli leaders recently that have made it fairly clear that they intend to, at very least, thin out the population in Gaza. And that's that's a quote. Thin it out. I'll give Biden credit. He, he, they have said we do not agree with that. They, they've been more strong in that statement saying, no, we do not agree with thinning that out. We do not agree with trying to evacuate them. All these tactics that, you, that you've seen. Now, none of this justifies what Hamas did. But I think as we talked about on this podcast before, America does have to start thinking about how much pressure we need to put on them to make sure that they're not committing war crimes. Because as many of you know, I believe it was South Africa, and I can't remember the other country was, that are saying, no, we're bringing charges against Israel for war crimes. We can't be a part of that. We have the power to make sure it doesn't happen. And all I'm saying is, are we doing what we can to make sure that doesn't happen? But go ahead, Chris. Yeah, and it was South Africa, Malaysia, and Turkey now has also joined Malaysia. That's um, that that lawsuit. So you've 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 got a a NATO member state party to an accusation in the International Court of Justice for war crimes. I think it's really important on the point that the article is making for listeners to acknowledge that this is really not about what you think about the conflict in Israel and in Gaza, because the the argument is that it is politically toxic. And regardless of whether you support Biden's strategy or you oppose it or you think it doesn't go far enough in in support of Israel, wherever you land on the kind of spectrum of opinions on this viewpoint, it is unquestionable that key parts of the Democratic coalition and Biden's base, which we have, I feel like sometimes we discuss the previous election, twenty. 20 election as if it was a blowout. It was it was the narrowest of margins. And so you can't afford to lose any of your coalition. And there are major parts of the Biden coalition in major states that are turned off as, as the, the most ridiculous understatement. I mean, just angry about his policy in Israel and in Gaza right now. And, and that becomes a big problem. And it, it only grows as... Things like the accusations, the case that, I mean, seems like it's going to go forward in front of the International Court of Justice really begins to add more legitimacy to the argument of folks who oppose Biden's approach in the region. So I think to the point of the article, when you're, when you're talking about the, the sort of international isolation, whether you think is right or wrong what Biden is doing, it is clear that we can't get most of our, you know, sort of usual allies to join us in the fighting Houthis at sea, that we do have a NATO state joining an accusation against Israel in front of the International Court of Justice, and that nations and leaders and people all over the world and inside the United States are standing in a very different, almost diametrically opposed position from where the United States and the president of the United States currently is on this issue. And and I want to point out, I don't think Christians have to agree on the allegations of war crimes against Israel. The application of those isn't necessarily super easy, right? I think, you know, some, Mm -hmm. some things may be obvious, but the application, it can be nuanced. What I think we don't have to agree on that, but what I think we do have to do is take them seriously. It doesn't matter which side you find yourself on. In no way should we be able to look look at allegations of war crimes or whatever it may be and just dismiss it off top. 
we're not here to tell you who to, who to agree with or what side to be on. We are here to tell you is take this stuff seriously and, and then kind of go from there. And one thing I have noticed, and I'm just going to you know talk about it a little taste. One thing I have noticed is there seems to be somewhat of a, of a divide in the church on how mm-hmm. much support should be given to Israel. I haven't found anybody. Well, I can't say anybody. <laughs> there's some there's some uh, extreme folks out there. I don't know. I haven't had any real discussions with anybody that's supporting Hamas, right? Like the the consensus is that what they did was wrong and they have to pay for it. But I think the divide is on, especially between black and brown Christians and white evangelicals on how much leeway Israel gets to do what they need to do. Do they need to be targeted or is there really no way to go about it targeted and they just got to do what they got to do to get it done? There's a divide there. And again, I don't think we necessarily have to agree, but I do think both sides have to do more than go along with the cultural narrative, whether it be the narrative on the right or the narrative on the left. All of us have to be thoughtful enough to look at the facts that we get and really evaluate them for ourselves and not just come to ideological conclusions. That's the least we can do. And I think that's demanded of us in this moment. Anything else, Chris? Yeah, I, w- I would just say, and, and there is a massive conversation to be had around the point, but I would urge again on, on either side of the conversation, because you can see this happening on either side of the argument, but you also have to be very careful to make sure that your ideology is not informing your theology, but it's the other way around. Right. And there are a lot of mistakes that can be made when you begin to let ideology shape how you read the scripture instead of allowing your reading of the scripture to shape how you approach policy. So I'll back off and leave it at that. But that's an important exhortation as you are thinking through the issue. That's real. Now, finally, within this article, Chris, he talks about domestic issues and our domestic problems. And one of the things he points out is unlike Russia, Iran or China, America's democratic system incentivizes short-term planning and offers its leaders the escape route of shifting responsibility for failures to the next rival administration. Woo. Let me say that again. And now, I don't think he's saying we should trade governments with Iran, Russia, or China, right? As I read that, keep that in mind. I don't think that's what he's saying. But he says, unlike Russia, Iran, and China, America's democratic system incentivizes short-term planning and offers its leaders the escape route of shifting responsibility for failure to the next rival administration. Man. Now, I think democracy is the best form of government. If there's a downside to the way we do it, that might be one of them. Again, better than Russia's government, better than Iran's government, better than China's, in my opinion. But that may be one thing that that blame shifting and not necessarily taking responsibility and fixing things that may be one problem that we've run into. And I'll, I'll go with this. I'll leave with this. Leave us with this final quote. America's previous two elections were marked by the most serious waves of civil disorder and political instability in decades as each party and their factions within the state bureaucracy contested each other's legitimacy, each deploying excitable civilians radicalized by the respective court press as proxy weapons. Over the course of the the coming year, America will likely be roiled by its internal political dysfunction in a way we have never yet seen. And the rest of the world will live in the shadow cast by the contested imperial throne. In other words, we've got some very serious problems on the home front. We have a court press, right? Some of the some of the people in our press, because we have some good folks in our press, too who are just taking sides and not delivering balanced, intellectually honest information. And it's radicalizing people to the point where we could seriously see violence in the streets in this next election. That's one of the reasons that we're doing the civic revival. That's a real threat, Chris. What are your thoughts on that? I think it is a is maybe the greatest threat. And and I think that the point here is not that China and Iran and Russia and their varying degrees of sort of autocracy have better forms of government, because I don't think that they do. 
I, I don't believe that the uh, that the the author of this article thinks that. I I don't know all of what he thinks, but I don't think he's making he's not making an argument in the article. I'm trying to remind people over and over again that while I think chaos is a feature of democracy, not a bug, but dysfunction is not. Dysfunction is not a feature. It is a a distortion of the system. And this, what, what the article is pointing to is something that I think the church has to think long and hard about, which is the complete breakdown of civil society, right? Like what gives a democratic nation continuity is not the consistent control of one party and certainly not one individual, but it is this kind of broader consensus you know, that we're going to work out our issues, that we're going to talk to each other. And that at the end of the day, this is a government that is of the people, for the people and by the people. And so the people are involved. What the people think matters a lot. To the extent that we get beyond that, the, the fact that our form of government has been so distorted and so disfigured that it currently does struggle to function. It consistently produces outcomes that nobody wants. We're getting ready to have a presidential election, if nothing changes, between two individuals who nobody wants to see be president. But the system has now been so distorted and disfigured that that's what it's designed to do, like produce this outcome that that virtually nobody actually wants. And that's the part that we really have to see if we can arrest and do something about. That's real, man. I mean. To your point, that may be the biggest threat, but it's the threat that we're most in control of. Not that we completely control it as the church, but as people, we do control how we enter into it and how we try to sway people away from it. I think the church does have, if not a unique responsibility, which I could argue that we do have a unique responsibility, certainly it's getting to be where the church is one of the last great hopes not only do we have the gospel, I think people on this podcast would be perfectly fine with me making this argument that like having the gospel, having the Holy Spirit is a tremendous, tremendous advantage. But even when I'm talking in, in, in more secular spaces, the church is an institution that continues to exist, continues to have platform. I'm, I'm encouraging folks like me who you, you're preaching to 150 people every week. And you you might feel like that's a struggle and that's small, but man, there are so many people who would kill to have an audience with of 150 people who are financially committed to an organization. Like when I talk to nonprofit folks and, and other le- leaders in what would be considered civil society, that's massive. And so I think we shouldn't sort of underestimate our ability to have some agency in this moment. And and the reason I think that's important, Justin, is that I, I don't think that we have to just give ourselves over to the narrative and the party infrastructure and all those things, because we have our own institution, we have our own power, we have our own people, and we can, if we want to, make up our own mind. And I think that's really, really important. No, you're right. That is important, man. So a lot to uh, we name some things to look forward to, some things to be concerned about, but we always have agency. We'll be right back. All right. Quick note, guys. In this segment, I actually mix up Michigan and Maine. It was Michigan Supreme Court that rejects the insurrectionist ban. It was Maine's secretary of state that removed Trump from the ballot. Sorry about that, guys. And we are back at the Church Politics Podcast. So what I want to go over, and we're running out of time, but I want to do this quickly. So many things since the last time we talked, Chris, have happened with this presidential election. I mean, name, we couldn't even get close to name all the things that have gone on. The first thing I think has been interesting, though, is, is Trump's name being taken off the ballot. So... There's an argument that because of the 14th Amendment and what happened on January 6th and the role that people feel Trump played in that, that he can be removed from the ballot based on a 14th Amendment claim. All right. And there are legal scholars that agree and disagree on that. Right. So there's no uh, consensus answer 
necessarily uh, in, in, on that. The Colorado Supreme Court, in a split decision, right? This wasn't everybody on the Supreme Court. I believe almost everybody on that court is progressive, but not everybody on that court agreed. They did remove Trump from the ballot, right? They basically said, hey, he participated in insurrection. Therefore, he should be removed from the ballot. Maine tried to do the same thing. The Supreme Court, the Maine Supreme Court says no. Interesting back and forth here. Eventually, I think what happens is both of the, you know, both of these may go to the Supreme Court. Either way, I believe this goes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court doesn't allow this to go forward. And my guess is that when the Supreme Court overturns the Colorado decision, it will not just be on ideological lines. I believe you may see a progressive like Kagan or someone like that actually vote with the more conservative members. Okay. And here's why. It's not because I think Trump's a great guy or didn't have anything to do with the insurrection. But number one, this is democracy. You got to let the people decide. Number two, even for Colorado, and this was mentioned by one of the justices who didn't go along with the decision, there's been no finding. He hasn't been prosecuted for January 6th. So there's been no fact finding that says he actually was involved in the insurrection to the extent where he should be blamed for it. And and then we can kind of bring in the 14th Amendment. We're talking about legal arguments. This isn't Justin, Justin saying that Trump had nothing to do with it. This is legally. There has been no fact finding to say he's been prosecuted for actually taking part in that. Maybe that should happen. It hasn't happened. So for me and some progressive scholars, too. That's a little bit of a reach. Now, there are there are more conservative scholars, David French, who is a, a friend of uh, of this podcast, who believe that that it is enough. All right. I don't think the Supreme Court is going to see that. And I think you got to leave it to the voters, especially when you don't have finding a fact that he participated. He hasn't been prosecuted for that. That's where I stand on it. Any thoughts, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I, I come out where you are. I think folks who are opposing this are doing it in some weird ways. But I, I do think that the basic underlying point that there's been no finding of fact, I, I think that is the reason why it's got to go back to the people. I think the Supreme Court sends it back to the people. I think that it, maybe it's good for the Supreme Court to give some more definition to what insurrection is and who defines it and and how. That's what the court is there for. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think they they add some flesh out what's meant by the 14th Amendment in this type of situation and how it applies. So hopefully that's what we get. I could be wrong. I don't expect that it'll just be the conservatives. I think you might see one or two of the others say, nah, let's let's not do it this way. Let's not let's not decide a campaign through the courts in yeah. that way. So the other thing is that I'll bring up in regard to the election as far as updates go is Biden is struggling in the polls. A recent poll I just saw showed him losing to Trump with young people and with Hispanics. That's really bad. Now, it's still early. The general hasn't started. I think we got, what, two weeks into the Iowa caucus. So there, there is time. And I think the saving grace for Democrats might be abortion is still an X factor. Yep. I think a lot of the folks that may be saying they're not going to vote when it comes to abortion and they when they bring that issue up, which is, a, which is a, an issue you and I disagree with the Democrats on, I think a lot of pro-choice people that may not like Biden may return home. That may be the saving grace for them. I don't know that it's enough, but it's something, right? Uh, any thoughts, Chris? I mean, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I have come to expect brilliant political instinct from Donald Trump. Don't agree with him on many, many things, but I have come to expect brilliant political instincts. And so I think that if the standard bearer for the Democratic Party, if his message on abortion is we will go no further, that might not be enough once he's engaged with Donald Trump, who just figures these things out. So, I, I mean, that is what the Democrats are banking on, but I don't know. I wouldn't be too comfortable with that. We'll see. I mean, I didn't know that it played as big of a role as it has in some of these special elections and, and all that, but it's it's had an impact. When you look back over election cycles, right, like some, a lot of times, not even sometimes, a lot of times the issues that play heavy in congressional races and, and midterms don't play as heavy in presidential elections. And Biden 
if all he can offer, which I'm not looking for him to offer anything else, just to be clear, I don't, you know, but if, if what his, if what his offer is, is we're not going to do anything else, I think Donald Trump might match him on that and still not lose his conservative support, right? And Biden may have to say, look, we'll, we'll have an amendment on abortion, you know, legalizing abortion. Which I, I think is going to be, I just don't know if that's going to be, I don't know if that's going to feel natural for him. I don't know if, if, if it's going to happen. Desperation can make <laughs> make you do many yeah. things. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's going to happen either, but... If you get desperate enough, who knows? So it, it certainly is out there. The the one thing that I'm also trying to like, that I think is really important to look at is enthusiasm and turnout, right? And three rematch elections in the history of the United States, turnout has always gone down. I think three or four other times when a losing presidential candidate regained his party's nomination, turnout went down. And so as much as we have to keep an eye on, you know, this conversation about if people are going to become violent and kind of go to war over this election, I think that also narrows the conversation on the tiniest group of Americans, you know, the kind of most extreme. And I'm concerned also about what do people just walk away and don't participate? And what does that pretend for like this election and also like the future? Nah, that is the big one. And even for even if, you know, because a lot of Democrats are like, OK, people may be mad. They're not going to vote for Trump. True. But they may be able to vote for Kennedy or just not yep. come at all. So that's something they have to be worried about. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure y'all, y'all understand that we're going to continue talking about this through November because it is important. And that's why y'all tune into us, man. So stay tuned because we're going to be giving to, it to you from a biblical perspective. And we're going to try to make sure that you are informed. All right. Well, and Cam, you know what it is. There's a cross in neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, and Cam, we'll holla at you. This episode was brought to you in part by The Table Podcast at Dallas Theological Seminary. Listen to rotating hosts discuss issues of God and culture to demonstrate theology's relevance in everyday life. Find it on your podcast app. For videos and more, visit dts.edu podcast.